side. or uh, took Aristotelian thought and made it the thought behind the developing uh, countries and the developing orders and the developing people of what we today know, know as Christendom. And it was this thought <clears throat> that um, was the basis upon which all of Christendom after that time uh, based its thinking upon until, and of course those were the glory days, the age of faith as it's called, um, until the modernists come along, and we'd have to go all the way back to the beginning of our series to discover that while we don't say that we know who the first modernist was, we began our discussion with uh, Rene Descartes and with Thomas Hobbes and uh, with John Locke, and now... We are in week two of this exploration, and I am joined by my co-host for this edition, uh, or this section of the modern wrong world made right, because we have different sections. We have the modernists were wrong, that's today. We have Darwin was wrong, and that is co-hosted by Christopher Ferrara. We have Calvin was wrong, and that is co-hosted by Ryan Grant, the Latinist. We have, let's see here, Luther was wrong, and that is co-hosted by my buddy Steve Cunningham. The uh, greatest living layperson apologist or practicer of apologetics that I know of. And certainly the greatest living non-layperson that I know of who is practicing the study and the teaching of Thomistic or scholastic philosophy is uh, our dear friend from the St. Augustine Institute, Brother Andre Marie. So, uh, Brother, we are now fully enthralled into the, uh, the world of Lent Having gone through Mardi Gras and Ash Wednesday last week, and now we're all into our first full week of Lent. So, uh, Gaudium Quadragesima to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. <laughs> happy, happy Lent to you, too. <laughs> happy Penitential Lent. Well, I'm having a Penitential, and I'll have you know that what I have here in front of me, I'll just tap it on the mic. That is my glass of um, what remains of the homemade smoothie that I brought in, because I'm on the liquid diet. Um supplementing with uh, with just enough carbohydrates to get me by. Uh, maybe you'll have a little half a bowl of pasta or uh, a, little, a little half a cup of rice or something in the evening. Uh, so, um, it's difficult, but it really does put, it really does make your mind work differently. Sometimes I'm not sure it's all good. Well, my, my special Lenten penance today was reading about Immanuel Kant and George Hegel, Georg Hegel. That was my special penance. <laughs> So, and you'll, folks, you'll understand all this in just a moment now. Uh, so last week we studied, uh, in the brief time that we had, we did uh, the two principal French philosophers who are responsible for the horrific errors in thought that are still being practiced by today's Frenchmen. And those were Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and, Rousseau, and uh, we know him as Voltaire, and I forgot his real name. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Francois-Marie Arouette. Francois-Marie Arouette. And this week now, we're going to move on to the two principal, or the three principal German versions 
uh, or 18th century French philosophers who are responsible today for much of the erroneous thought uh, that has possessed the, uh, the people of Germany. Certainly we can say that uh, it influenced the thinking that led to the overthrow of, of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm and monarchy in Germany and led to the rise of German National Socialism. And we all know what happened after that. Uh, but we'll focus in today on uh, 18th century, principally on 18th century philosophers and Immanuel Kant. So that is a penance having to read Kant, isn't it? You bet. <laughs> you bet. Now, uh, and that, and in the fo- in the following two episodes, we're going to get into a detailed exploration and hopefully educational journey on, okay, Mike and brothers, so what? They had these guys that were bad philosophers, as you say. Who cares? Well, maybe the millions upon millions or tens of millions of people that are dead as a result of them, <laughs> they might have cared. And uh, it's I think we can say without reproach, brother, that the country of France, it flirted with trying to reconcile its errors in 1860s, 1870s or so, uh, but just couldn't bring itself to do it. And today is with the Charlie Hebdo types running the show over there in French culture. It is, I think we can, uh, we can safely say that the errors of Rousseau and of Voltaire are still certainly very prevalent among, amongst the thinkers in France, if there is any thinking going on in France. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly, I mean, th- their only thinking is liberalism, which is sort of anti-thinking. But yeah. So uh, so today we're talking about the German idealists. And, uh, you know, the, these are the guys who, in, in very large measure, paved the way for um, Nazism and communism, which people think are opposites, but they're really not. Uh, and in, in a way, they were in a way they were a fulfillment of of um, Hegel's concept of the dialectic. But in, in in a way, they're not really opposites because they're both just different forms of socialism. That's right. Um, and if I may, before we get started, um, I'm going to bring us into the 20th century, and I'm going to introduce the audience to just one brief paragraph that will uh, show that. This method of thinking does not have to be entered into. It does not have to be engaged. You can fight it. And there have been very prominent Germans, or Austrians as it were, uh, that did fight it and were actually, at the time of Hitler, had a little bit of, uh, had some success. And of course, brother, you know I'm talking about Wilhelm Röpke. Okay, and, the economist. Okay, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, uh, and after World War II, after the horrors of National Socialism, German National Socialism, which if you abbreviate it, that's how you get Nazis, Nazism, mm-hmm. uh, Rupka was, con- uh, he was asked by, uh, by the United States and by uh, Great Britain and the Allied powers and the, uh, the, the then makeshift government, which was basically cobbled together by, um, uh, by the victors of the war, to present a plan for German unification and for German uh, economic, for the Germans to get back to some form of a market economy. But Ger- but, but, but to his credit, uh, Rupke said, look, economics is not really what's, uh, what, we, what we have to recover from. We have to recover from communism. You guys don't get it. And communism is not just simply a form of, uh, of, of economics, which most Americans still today tragically think it is. And just one paragraph from his book on a humane economy, brother, and this is how he introduced, introduced the, the spiritual and moral setting. 
One of the oversimplifications by which social rationalism distorts the truth is that communism is a weed particular to the marshes of poverty and capable of being eradicated by an improvement in the standard of living. This is a fatal misconception. Surely everyone must realize by now that the world war against communism cannot be won with radio sets, refrigerators, and widescreen films. Of course, you could say today widescreen televisions. Mm. It is not a contest for a better supply of goods. Unfortunately for the free world, whose record in this field cannot be beaten. The truth is, it is a profound, all-encompassing conflict of two ethical systems in the widest sense, a struggle for the very conditions of man's spiritual and moral existence. Not for one moment may the free world waver in its conviction that the real danger of communism, more terrible than the hydrogen bomb, brother, is the threat to wipe these conditions from the face of the earth. Anyone who rejects this ultimate apocalyptic perspective must be very careful, lest sooner or later, and perhaps for no worse reason than weakness or ignorance, he betray the greatest and highest values which mankind has ever had to defend. In comparison with this, everything else counts as nothing. Now, that's a man that got it and saw that what, what, what we're about to discuss, what Kant and what Hegel and what Schopenhauer brought into being with their, their horrifically flawed thought would engender and would lead to that state of thinking uh, that, as Roki points out, man, if you think this problem is just economic, then you just, you, <laughs> you're not a very good thinker because this is not a problem of economics. It is so you're saying it's not the economy stupid? It's not the economy stupid. Um, so when we get to the end of our discussion, I hope that uh, in a couple of weeks we'll be able to demonstrate this. But let's go back to the beginning, shall we? 18th century German philosophers. And I suppose that the king of all those, and you know a lot, far more about him than I, is Immanuel Kant. Brother? Yeah, okay. So Immanuel Kant, his years were 1724 to 1778. So he's, you know, all in the century that we're focusing on, the 18th century. His main works were the Critique of Pure Reason, the Critique of Practical Reason, and the Critique of Judgment. Um, this is the philosopher as the as the critic, which is kind of a modern uh, a, a modern um, phenomenon. Now, Kant uh, Kant tried to reconcile two strains of modern thought that were considered irreconcilable. Kant tried to reconcile, and so it's important we got we harken back to whom we started with, which is uh, Descartes. And Descartes is basically um, a rationalist uh, in his philosophical approach. There is, a, there is an a priorism in his thinking. All of his thinking is from a priori reasoning. Then you have another tendency of modern philosophy. So I think cogito ergo sum. That's all, that's all based upon a priori reasoning. I think therefore starts in, I am. He starts right? in his own mind. Right. So you've got a priori reasoning. Uh, which is which is a part of the rationalism of the of the uh, age of the so-called enlightenment. Then you have an opposite tendency of the age of the enlightenment, which we see among many of the scientists, who many of whom also were 
philosophers, as, as we talked about, you know, Hobbes and, and a lot of these guys were actually uh, empirical scientists, lab- they did experiments in laboratories and so forth. Um, so for them, it was a priori meant absolutely nothing. They, they were anti-rationalists in a certain sense. For them, everything was observation. Everything was scientific observation. And therefore, they, they, they are empiricists. Therefore, everything for them is a posteriori. Everything's based upon observation. So the rationalism and the empiricism of modern thought which were sort of uh, trends at loggerheads, as it were, was something that, that Immanuel Kant tried to reconcile. And you notice that all of this is in the question of epistemology. All of this is in the question of knowledge, which is really kind of the major thing that Kant is credited with is his theory of knowledge. It's not the only thing. I mean, these German idealists, you've you got to give the Germans something. When they do it, they do it thoroughly. When they do it, they do it systematically. There's a certain thoroughness and uh, methodicalness that uh, German thinkers take to their task. Um, you know, you think of you think of these guys in their philosophy as sort of like Wagner writing the Ring Cycle. I mean, there's just there's something there's there's an amazing capacity that they have for the exhaustive in their undertakings, or a Mahler symphony, or something like that. Just just big, huge, grandiose. Anyway. Um, so Kant got into Kant and the other German idealists in general get, got into basically every area of philosophy that we're going to cover in 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 real philosophy, Philosophia Perennis. They get into logic. They get into um, more, uh, ethics. They get into um, psychology of a sort. They get into various, you know, all of the various disciplines of philosophy. They're going to try to cover. But what Kant, I think, is most known for two things, principally his, his, his uh, epistemolo- epistemological system and his ethical system. So we can, we can, we can tack, tackle those one at a time. Um, so his, his epistemology, in other words, his theory of knowledge, is an attempt at modifying the radical and some would say sort of naive um, idealism of Bishop George Barclay. 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 There, there. Now, Barclay was his was was his predecessor. He was in the early 18th century. Barclay was, as we know, a Church of Ireland bishop. That is an Anglican Irishman bishop who in Northern Ireland who who came up with some. Uh, he basically said that. Um, uh, S.A.S. Pertrupi, that was his statement. To be is to, to be perceived. Perceived, right. So he absolutely full stop denied the reality of things outside of our minds, and, at our, and he made our minds, rather than knowing faculties, he made of them creative faculties. Things that, and I don't, I'm not using creative in an analogous sense. He made it so that we actually create our own realities. And only when something is perceived, then does it exist. Now, a lot of the German idealists thought this was way too unsophisticated. This was way too simplistic. And therefore, I mean, aside from the fact that it's, you know, it's, 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 it's stupid and it defies all common sense. And if Barclay had lived day to day as if he thought that, he, he, would, he, would, he would have been put in an asylum. Brother, brother can, I, can I just interject? Uh, I can illustrate this with a story that Brother Francis told us about the day that Barclay was finished telling, uh, saying the Mass, and it was raining outside. 
and he uh, he went to the procession as the priest does, uh, so he'd be the first one out, and he could greet the parishioners when they left. And instead of going outside, he stood in the vestibule, and it was raining. And <laughs> and and one of the uh, one of the the young the young men there, or the servers that had kind of studied Barclay's philosophy there, uh, wanted to know why he stopped. And Barclay said, well, son, because it's raining out there. And uh, the young man, uh, and you should go over to the, uh, to the rectory and go get me a, a, an umbrella. And the young man said, why do I need to go get you an umbrella? Isn't, uh, isn't the rain just in your head? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's a funny story. And um, as Brother pointed out, the, the, the Greek philosophers, when they, they actually lived according to their uh, idiosyncrasies, and that's why they were... They live out in the woods, and they were like hermits. And you know, the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers who had these weird ideas, um, they they would actually live like um, madmen in the woods. And, right. And, and people people sort of um, uh, appreciated them. Uh, these these modern guys they get they got high paying jobs in in, in academia, and um, they just sort of they're hip, they're hypocrites. But uh, so Kant actually tried to modify that that say raw naked kind of idealism uh, of the of the um, Englishman or the I Irish uh, he was really an Englishman um, Ber Berkeley 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 so Berkeley uh, so we'll set him aside not talk about him anymore now we're talking about Kant Kant comes up with a very convoluted uh, system of identifying reality as it is, which he calls um, the, new, the noumena, which is also called, um, in German, the uh, das Ding an sich, the thing in itself. So th th there's the thing in itself, and then there is what we perceive, and that is the phenomenon. That is the phenomena. So you've got the phenomena, the phenomenon. Phenomena is plural. The phenomenon and the noumenon, the or the phenomena and the noumena, to be consistent in the in the in the plural. The the um, we cannot know according to Kant the ding an sich. We cannot know the thing in itself. All we can know is the experience of the thing. So everything that we know must be something that we experience. And everything, which by the way, and of course for him, experience is, is defined in something of a materialistic way. Therefore, his principles are fundamentally opposed to any concept of God. <laughs> And later authors, later, later um, German idealists, guys who actually believed in Kant's principles, struggled with this. And uh, they were Protestants mostly, some were Catholic. Um, they, they struggled with this, and they came up with critiques of Kant, and they, and they tried to insert some outlet for having God in Kant's system. One of these guys is Schleiermacher, who's going to provide the um, philosophical underpinnings for what we Catholics call modernism. In other words, not the general movement of, of errors in, in, in modernity, but the very specific heresy condemned by that name 
under that name by Pope Pius the um, the tenth, Saint Pius the tenth. So uh, Schleiermacher is an important figure, but Kant starts with with these principles that are utterly antithetical to Christianity, other, utterly anti, antithetical really to any theistic system of of belief. Um, because you can only exp- know, know anything in as much as you experience it. But the thing is, you cannot know the thing in itself. So reality itself is always elusive. All that we can know is what we experience of it. So he doesn't deny the existence of reality. Uh, others, did, others do this. Other German idealists came on later and said, no, no, no. People said that Kant was wrong on, on various fronts. Some of them, for some of them, he was way too moderate. And some of them said, well, why posit that there even is a ding an sich? Why posit that there even is a thing that exists in reality? Why posit that there is a, it, there, there is a, a noumena and, and not just that there are phenomena that we see? So in a, in a way, it's weird. In a way, he's kind of considered conservative within his own <laughs> radical element of, That's a uh, laugh. of, of <laughs> German idealism, supposed transcendental idealism. And remember, for Kant, this is to reconcile two, two, two strains of thought, of, of, of continental thought, two strains of modern um, uh, philosophy, um, the a priorism of the uh, rationalists like Descartes and company and uh, the um, empiricism of the empiricists like all, all those guys who, who just for them science was, was everything in observation in a laboratory and so forth. So this is, this is his theory of knowledge. Now an awful lot could be said about it but that that it's it's so important because what he what he lays the foundation of he lays the foundation of a whole series of further permutations of this concept which which uh, bring us to some of the radical ideas of Hegel and then beyond Hegel Marx and we get Lots of people dead from from these from these ideas. That's Ultimately, right. for him, the truth there is he he he, did, he didn't deny that there's something of an objective reality, but he so emphasized the subjective. He so emphasized the subjective that that's really all you can know. So how can I tell you, how can I tell you something about reality? All I can tell you is my experience of reality. So this is the uh, the, um, the the way to kind of explain this and and to flesh this out so you so that the audience can see uh, how this might apply and maybe how if Kant were around today heaven for friend <laughs> that he might give an example uh, the old adage brother uh, if a tree falls in the wood does it make a sound uh-huh. if no if no one is there to hear it well the philosopher says well of course it makes a sound it doesn't matter if I'm there to hear it. If it falls uh, and it's it's in the natural world, it makes a concussion. Bam! It makes a sound. Well, you know the the, the, the philosopher, the Kantian philosopher, says, "Well, no, because no one is there to perceive it. If no one is there to perceive it, and there's then there's no perceiver. Then there's no tree. 
And it wouldn't matter if it, what difference does it make if it fell? Well, I, actually, I think, I think that Kant would actually be something of an agnostic on the question because he would tell you that all he can know is his experience. So he wouldn't even know if the tree fell. Well, I mean, if he saw a tree falling and it made a sound, he would know that 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 the he would know the phenomena. He would say, "I, I grant you the phenomena. I grant you that I perceived a tree falling and I perceived that it made a sound." But is that what really happened? Is that what really happened? And he would so, say, "I don't know because I don't know the ding an sich. I don't know reality as it is. I don't know the 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 noumena. I don't know the thing that's really there." So, if we interject now, what I say constantly on the radio show, and what we'll hear tomorrow night during our philosophy course, that what is truth? Truth is conformity of the mind to reality. The reality is, is that the tree did fall. It doesn't matter what Kant thinks about it or what Kant thinks his brain thinks about it. The tree fell. The reality is, yeah. is that re reality requires us to say that the tree fell. And we were standing close enough and we heard it. It did make a sound. Um, but in the absence of us being in this, and I think and we're going to take a break here, brother, but I think this is where the SAS Perchipe comes in, that uh, being is being perceived, right? And uh, we studied this in really deep in, in great detail in our philosophy course, which is why it makes a lot a lot of sense to me. Which is why I just want to, for people that aren't taking the philosophy course, I just want to kind of kind of explain to them what it is uh, to try to put it not just as a uh, as a theory, but okay, well, here's how you might try and explain the theory, and here's how Kant might try and explain the theory. And I found this interesting, brother, just to, to wrap this segment up on the German philosophers. The Germans were wrong. Last week, the French were wrong. Now, the Germans were wrong. This is from the Cambridge University Press in 2002. A gentleman that goes by the name of Terry Pinkard wrote a book, wrote a book about German philosophers and a couple of volumes. first volume is German philosophy, 1760 to 1860, the legacy of idealism, which is exactly what you said, but he said it as a secularist. So you two arrived at the same conclusion, which is shocking. Um, here's what he wrote. Here's the uh, abstract of the book, brother, just one part of it. In the second half of the 18th century, German philosophy came for a while to dominate European philosophy. It changed the way in which not only Europeans, but people all over the world conceived of themselves and thought about nature, religion, human history, politics, and the structure of the human mind. In this rich and wide-ranging book, Terry Pinker, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's a pretty accurate, I mean, th th that's bold in what it says, but it's accurate, though, isn't it, brother? It oh, did change the way people thought. Oh, absolutely, and it's, and it's still quite with us. There's no question, it's still with us. I mean, I remember being in seminary, getting in an argument with with a uh, a fellow seminarian who comes right out and starts turning Kant. He starts regurgitating Kant all over me, and he actually came out and said, "You cannot know reality as it is, because you know phenomena and noumena and all that." I mean, <laughs> that's how he said it. I couldn't believe it. And, and you know, this guy—he's probably God. God help us—he's probably a priest now, pre preaching heresy someplace. <laughs> well. With that, we shall take our first time out. He is Brother uh, Andre Marie of the St. Augustine Institute. Brother, please stand by. We'll be right back with uh, more of this uh, fascinating conversation about the Germans were wrong. This is all part of our series here, folks, which goes all the way back, as I s said, to late July of last year. The modern wrong world made right. Now, we have to tell you how the modern wrong world is 
before we can make it right. Brother's already doing a great job of telling you how to make it right with his show, Reconquest, which you can hear every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. East, right here on the Veritas Radio Network Crusade Channel. If you miss any part of any of these episodes of The Modern Wrong World Made Right, please consider joining us on the Veritas Radio Network and the Crusade Channel and becoming a Founders Pass member, an official paying member, and that will gain you access to all of the features that we have produced in this series and much, much more, including the Mike Church Show, the Mark Kreslin Show, My Story of America, the Constitution Hour with Professor Goodsman, and much, much more. Find the sign-up forms today at mikechurch.com forward slash join or just go to veritasradionetwork.com. We'll be right back with segment two of this episode of The Modern Wrong World made right here on the Veritas Radio Network Crusade Channel. Crusade Channel. 